This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, welcome to another week of O Ship. So this week, uh, I'll be welcoming another one of my very special guests, Donald Chestnut, uh, who's the Chief Experience Officer at General Motors. So I've actually known Donald since about 2008, and I consider myself to be a pretty old school digital guy, as some of you may know, but I got to be honest, Donald, Donald's got me beat. He's been in the, in the biz for a really long time. Uh, when, you, when I look back at my resume in, in 1995, I was you know, making websites about my hobbies like uh, video games and, and sound systems. And he was working at companies like America Express and their, and their interactive groups. Uh, he actually then went from there to join iconic early digital agencies like Studio Archetype, which got acquired by Sapient. Uh, he went from there to become the chief experience officer at Sapient Nitro, and then a global chief experience officer at Sapient Razorfish. And then he really jumped in the deep end and became the chief experience officer at MasterCard before his latest amazing role as the chief experience officer at General Motors, which he started in January of 21. Did you see how many times I got to use the word experience there? So needless to say, I think this is something that Donald knows a lot about. Beyond all that, in my interactions with him over the years, I found him to be, frankly, just kind of an all-around amazing human being. And he's a very admired and capable leader. So I had to have Mondo Ship as a guest. So today we're going to dig into Donald's thoughts on building kind of incredible customer experiences through the eyes of the customer and his take on design, innovation, and how that impacts those experiences. So here we go with another week of O-Ship. Welcome. So glad you're here. Hey, Freddie. I'm delighted and excited to be here talking with you and everybody else. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I've got so much stuff I want to dig into today. So I'm just, I'm just going to dive in. I, I, I hope I did your incredible background justice. I think you know, people are going to have a pretty clear idea of, of what you're all about. You made me blush and you made me feel old at the same time. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm, I think one of those was a good thing. One not so good. <laughs> So, you know, I, I talked to reference digital guys. There's all these you know, titles that have been over the years. You know, we were web guys, we were interactive guys, we were digital guys. When did you go from being a digital guy to being an experienced guy? That's a great question. You know, I do look, when I talk about kind of the history evolution and just where we are and the importance of customer experience, I do look at technology as as being the reason we talk about experience. Now, I've been around a while. I haven't been around that long, but I don't think before we had like microcomputers, I'm talking 90s, 1990s, did we really start talking about things like user experience? We had fields that were human computer interaction and things, but it was the early advent of microcomputers, the first versions of the Mac, you referenced me working early days in companies like American Express. I always kind of laugh and say in explaining my, that was pretty much my first role in digital new media. 
and I was a product manager for AOL service. I'm sorry, American Express's service over AOL called ExpressNet. So I love calling that an update myself. Get those AOL disks out, everybody. Exactly. So Rain Man, you know, programming and Rain Man. It was these early days of technology, the explosion of microcomputers that made us start talking about user experience. And I don't even think we said digital back then. It was just oh, no, definitely not. technology and web, web, web. You, I think you mentioned website, webmaster, these roles. Yeah, yeah. Interactive. We got a lot of that. We don't exactly. see the big. But it was when HCI started to become user experience in the late 90s that the word, and you called it out in your intro, like how many times you said the word experience, is exactly when I think I started focusing a little bit more on not the technology, but how people engage with the technology, which has always been my interest. So I went to graduate school in the early 90s at NYU's ITP program. And there was a lot of really talented people there, some creatives and some fine artists who wanted to do multimedia work. And there was some technologists that wanted to look at the future. I always said I loved technology, but I had no patience. I'm not a great designer. I'm not a designer. I love great design. But I was always interested in how people engage and making things super easy. So it was, I'd say, the late 90s that we started talking about user experience. And then, you know, one of the early people that I worked with who was so instrumental in my career and many other people's career, Clement Mock, worked at Apple in the early days. He had kind of his, one of his many ex- mantras was the experience is the brand. So it's really that late 90s that I think, you know, I don't think we said digital, but experience became important. And it was first brand experience and then user experience and then as the industry continued to grow and technology transformed and disrupted all sorts of industries, customer experience came to the forefront. So suddenly it wasn't just about one channel. It was how are you thinking about the business from the outside in? So already been a little long-winded in that answer, but it, it is, I think, the late 90s that experience came big and it started with user experience in that one. One of the things that makes you a very charismatic leader is it's it's obvious that you're very passionate about um, this space. And so I'd love to understand, I think you've told you know, some of the things that excite you about uh, experience, but what is it that you love about customer experience? Like, what, what, you know, is there something about this that must make you really that excited about it? And I'd love to, I'd love to know what that is. So I love, I love technology. That's what's changing the world. So that's the starting yeah. point. Like you have to, you can't be in business without understanding the role that technology is playing. But there's a quote that Jeff Bezos, many great quotes, is talk about being customer focused. And he says, customers are always incredibly and wonderfully dissatisfied. Mm. Pretty much exact words. And even when they're happy, they're actually dissatisfied because they will always switch to something else and something better when it comes along. Mm-hmm. So that level of, the again, at the end of the day, my business and many businesses are really about people and knowing that what is new and innovative today quickly, if it's that innovative, quickly becomes standard in one industry and adopted to another industry. And then there's an opportunity for what do you do next? And I look at the evolution of retail in the last 20 years, crazy with just plain e-commerce, but then the role that 
physical retail continues to play in a wonderful way. And it's not one or the other, it's the blend. So our long answer to your question, or less long than the first one, it's the constant change of customer behavior and people behavior that is the most exciting. So if you're really, truly focused on the customer, that's what you need to focus on and always look for opportunities to do things better. It's a really tricky um, space because I love how you, you say, look, I, I love I love technology. Uh, I love technology as well. So I can obviously understand that. Customer experience, obviously, if it sounds like really needs to be up constantly from the perception and perspective of the customer, looking through the eyes of the customer. But I think it's really easy for people to get lost in the new tech. And I've seen it happen throughout my career where people are they're talking about customer experience, but maybe they're so geeked out on some new technology innovation that's coming through that, you know, how do you find the, the right balance? So, you know, sometimes we talk about people being too early being a great example. Like, how do you know really when you start reacting in customer experience to, to new tech? So I, I guess the quick answer is, is, does it have the opportunity to change people's behavior? So really thinking about, you know, um, the ability to use, I think of Google Glasses, maybe a great product well before its time, but what did it really add at, at that time? Now we might see, and I think we will see a great, you know, great new chapter in wearables that can do a lot more. But if I, if we talk about the experience of Google Glasses and what did it really add at the time? Probably a great example of it didn't really change behavior. And it might be because because the technology wasn't there or the applications of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll always go back to, so keeping an eye on technology and how it can, again, that's because that's my definition of innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, technology is capability, but once you use technology to change how someone books a cruise mm-hmm. or buys a car or whatever else it might be or keeps in touch with their family, then you've innovated. And that ain't, that ain't ever going back. I would say yeah. that. So, um, all right, that's my, that's how I, 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 I cannot, I, if you saw me giggling at your answer, I wasn't laughing at the answer. As soon as you said Google Glass, to the day I die, I will always have the image of Robert Scoble in the shower wearing his Google Glasses, which I would argue was the oh shit moment for Google when they were like, oh, no, this is not the brand vibe that we're trying to put out. <laughs> Uh, uh, I actually, I actually had Robert on the show years ago, and uh, had to ask him about that as as no ship moment. But yeah, too too funny. I think he did finally take them off. Thankfully, (laughs) he's keeping them on the shelf. He's going to pull them out when kind of the yeah yeah. Yeah, while we talk about glasses, that's that's a good one actually, and and uh, just pops into my head. You know, there are rumors of Apple glasses coming out. You know, you're hearing about other major brands doing this. What's your take on on um, you know kind of face wearables, glasses, AR, uh, uh, you know, mixed reality type uh, impacted customer experience in the let's call it five year horizon? I think it's great to say, of course, there'll be some impact, but how how much of a real thing do you think this is in the in the near term? Oh, I think it'll be real. So mm-hmm. what I and again understanding, I think that what we've already seen is people embrace wearables. So many people, Fitbits. Apple Watches, other types of things. Now, once you put something on your face, it's a whole different class of wearable. Mm-hmm. So and I think understanding and respecting that, and we can think about, oh, these devices, they're part of fashion or not. Or can we get to a point where I can have the eyeglasses that I've chosen today, but have them be digitally enabled? That would be mm-hmm. 
So what I also love about the notion of face wearables and glasses is the mixed reality. So there's something to be said for full virtual going full meta metaverse. Something pretty amazing about being able to experience today's world and have a digital overlay at the same time in some form or another, what that could do to shopping or to training and education or to repairing a refrigerator or a, or a jet engine without the local tech, the technician being, but being able to see that level of information, brilliant examples that I think we will finally see the light of day. Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot with anything specific to, to General Motors that you'd be uncomfortable to talk about, but as a general concept, you know, what do you think people are thinking about when it comes to, let's say, the big, potentially being a digital overlay on my glasses and, and driving? Because uh, that, that could be the greatest thing ever or the worst thing ever, depending on the execution. So the very first thing that comes to mind is safety. Yeah, of course. You know, we're a company that has, has learned and, and believes very first and foremost in our vision of zero, zero, zero is all about a better world. But also one of those zeros is zero collisions zero fatalities. So thinking about any technology like that would have to be so tightly vetted with, does it distract or does it enhance? Mm-hmm. But I would say in that specific case, there's probably much better examples of using other glass in the vehicle, like your windshield, which mm-hmm. we are today. I don't know if you've been in a GM vehicle, but the the display that reflects on your windshield that shows some safety information, your speed as it relates to the current speed. Amazing. And I can see That's awesome. And I can see just there. And so that would be a much smarter and therefore, well, much safer and therefore much smarter application of technology that is not necessarily on your face. But we have many partners that come to us, well, you could do certain things. And I always come back with, well, what should you do? And safety being the very first kind of thing that we take into account by way of should. So, Yeah, I mean, I guess any, anything with a vehicle, if you if you compromise that in any way, it's just it's not as non-negotiable, basically. Non-negotiable. Yeah. Because there are people using, this is a wonderful thing about working in a company with such scale, but there are people using your products every day all the time. And then there's those people in the community itself, they're pedestrians and other people that are, it's absolutely paramount. So. Hey, so what are some of the other technologies and innovations that you're watching out there that you think are interesting or have the biggest potential impact on customer experience? You know, I'll just go to something that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind, but it's worth unpacking is data. So I think your probably question was, what are the other technologies that customers might see? Uh, and I can talk about that and the other um, yeah, of that, but just the understanding of driving patterns and how we can actually create better services for the vehicle, understanding how driving patterns can unleash much smarter underwriting for insurance. Uh, yesterday was a post on, on media channels around our new roads initiative for city, local uh, city and state governments. Our cars can now predict where there's going to be a pothole based on a little bit of bump. And we have research that shows you can fix a pothole now when it's just actually a small little hole, or you can wait till it's actually a large pothole, which is when most city and state governments fix them. And the cost differences, believe, I don't, I'm going to quote myself, but it is like 10 times, nine times more. That's bonkers. 
So bonkers, right? So you can actually have data that you know works with a you know a smarter city that says fix things these things now at one tenth of a cost um, before they're actual problems. That's just one example of many of of having. Do you think the cars will be like, you know, that kind of uh, data capture, which again, Brian, I wasn't expecting that uh, answer at all. Uh, There's one side of it where I think people are imagining, you know, city vehicles are potentially doing that kind of scanning and that makes sense. But then there's another version of that that could potentially be, well, you know, is there all, all vehicles are scanning for it and there's, is there some kind of like data layers or like, Hey, you know, some old cars start to share a certain amount of information because it's, good for the collective will and doesn't imp- impact privacy in any way. And then other things might be the data that's specific to that individual user that, operator or car. Exactly right. So I think cities are, we can look at the data in aggregate. We can look at the data specific to you with your permission. And again, I look at safety is paramount data safety and security is also paramount. So we kind of, um, work very carefully but what what is related to how your vehicle behaves and how your family behaves etc just understanding what services we can unlock there but uh the aggregate there's also how vehicles can talk to each other so when you look at the future of the connected car so it's not just what the vehicle is experiencing and then you know an upload it is understanding where traffic is happening etc when you think about Autonomous vehicles, that becomes all the more important. The vehicle to vehicle, you know, share of data of what is coming, what is coming literally and figuratively around the bend. Mm. I guess a lot of this, when you think about data, uh, and I, at least when I think about customer experience, the best customer experiences anticipate your needs before you have them. And old, and, and, and I think every, uh, uh, you know, every data point that you get out there, I think, you know, kind of makes that more powerful. When I, when, I, when I can't help but think about this with vehicles, and again, I'm just catching up to what you've been probably been thinking about for years, but you know, I think about like the, the opt-in things you do like on a website or an app, and you're like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll share a little bit more extra data if it makes the broader experience better. And I guess people will maybe will start opting into that same kind of data with their, their vehicles. It's really wild. It is absolutely wild. So we have a bunch of uh, projects and products underway right now where we are testing and learning with that based on what we know from your usage and then with permission, providing new services and making you, making you aware of new services that you might not know exist based on your driving behavior. And you need to do that very carefully. So the experience is everything with the permission and understanding of the customer. But I'll, I'll maybe put out another idea that is, you know, there's where mobility is today. And where it will be in five years, and that's one of the things that excites me the most about the business I'm in, and the and the company GM that I'm, I'm working in. That we have a, an initiative that is called the Software Defined Vehicle, and I think of maybe I'll just simplify it like what a phone was in 2003, a smartphone back then, versus what it was after the second and third iteration of the iPhone, when suddenly you, it was a platform for apps, and now it is this little computer. That does so much, so much is travel services, business service, communication. I mean, the phone, as we know, is the least of it. The vehicle itself will be start thinking of the step change with the amount of technology, the amount of hardware, the amount of sensors and the data that is constantly running through it to be able to do things like autonomous driving 
monitoring your vehicle for better performance in the world of electric driving, whatever, but it, uh, and many, many other products and services, it will be a fundamentally different relationship that consumers have with mobility in two years, five years, and 10 years than it is today. And then it certainly was 10 years ago. So that is super exciting, just the um, amount of innovation that is happening in the world of mobility. I, I feel like it's like any other industry that I'm aware of in my even in my years prior to being at GM and just understanding other businesses, just how much change people go through. So that, that's a great segue. So you, you've worked again. When I, when I knew you, we were more on the air. When I first met you, it was probably a better way of phrasing that. Uh, and you, you work, were working in an agency in the consulting space. And you get to work on lots of different uh, brands and industries. It's one of, the, one of the fun sides of the kind of agency and consulting business. Then you've had, you know, like I said, two very major roles at two very major companies. And I would love to know just as a creator and as a leader and as an executive, what do you feel like you've learned uh, the most in the last couple of years from taking on these, these chief experience officer roles uh, on, the, on the brand side or the corporate side? That on a corporate or what we call in our old agents, the client side, that there are people using your products every day. So understanding how we both make it better for today, and this is definitely the opportunity at General Motors, how you continually make vehicle ownership from shopping and buying to ownership to service better. And at the same time, while we create new services, some of which I just described, and at the same time, innovate, super, super interesting, also super challenging. And there's that Old, old cliche of changing the engines of a, a airplane that's in flight. That's what we're trying to do. So, and continually, and, and the, what uh, I think attracted me the most is from a customer experience standpoint, the, I always use the analogy, if I was a sculptor, there's so much clay to work with by way of people's interactions today with mobility. So you think about shopping and buying and how that experience is changing via digital and how much we want it to be continually to be better. Ownership, the features. So another example I love to call out is that what a vehicle can do today, so different than what it could do five years ago. But do customers, owners really understand that? And that will change. So making sure that we're educating and informing and then service. So, But then I'll just add one more little dimension the role that digital and technology plays. So from web to mobile, to chat, to intelligent advisors, to our wonderful advisors in our contact centers. So GM has pioneered kind of the connected car with OnStar that is monitoring your car and you get into an accident, they call you. Are you okay? And do you want us to take your 911 trained and connected to 911? So all of the connected services that are all providing customer experiences it's a lot. So it's it's just wonderfully exciting to continue to think about how we make that better, you know, at every step along the way. You, you know, one of the things you alluded to a second ago is when you're dealing with a company of this kind of scale uh, and they, you know, you've got multiple generations of cars and uh, using GM as an example, uh, you know, you refer to as users, maybe in some of the other roles, but it's like, yeah, there are people actively using these things. I think sometimes in the in the creative and agency and the consulting world, you get brought in for a project, you have to come up with something brilliant, but no one ever talks to you about implementation, let alone with a you know company with 
tens of millions of, of customers and generational support and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that um, there's a huge operational side of this, you know, basically that I think it's uh, forgotten, forgotten about. And I'm sure a lot of that falls in, into your world. Huge. Well, I'd like to flip this on its head, though. Uh, so there may be, we, you know, we have a wide range of different people uh, that that tune into Oship. And by the way, I've been seeing questions pop up in chat, and we're going to address some of those in a minute. But there are people here with, with smaller businesses, and they're hearing a lot about customer experience, and they know it's they know it's important too. You know, so there's different problem sets that you might be dealing with uh, than, let's say, a, a smaller business owner. Is there any size of business that shouldn't be thinking about customer experience at this point? And if assuming not, you know, what, what, what should smaller businesses maybe focus on given that they don't have infinite resources? So that's a wonderful question. There is no difference. Businesses of any size should be thinking about the experiences that they're providing. So I think um, it goes back to that Bezos quote, just even if you've got happy customers, understand those happy customers will happily probably move to something else if it comes along that actually fits an unmet need that they didn't, they didn't even realize they had. So always understanding what are your customer needs and how are you providing for them? That works in a business of three people, of 300 people, of 30,000 and more people. Just That's the beauty of, I think, Freddie, your, your history and my history of trying to design businesses and services and brands from the outside in. So it, I think the, the rules apply and going back towards, I always define customer experience as two things. It's breaking down how much do you know about your customers? So that insight and what are their pain points and what are their pain points tomorrow and, and what you do with that insight in the design of your service. So digital or otherwise. So if you can do those things, that's how a customer you know, experience comes to life in that, in that fashion. So, and this is something, look, you could, be a, you could be a startup with three or four people. And I think if you have some level of empathy or maybe even just intuition on what customers need, then you should be shaping your, your service, your offering accordingly, which is a, another segue to another question I meant to ask you, actually. So uh, you've been, again, doing this for a really long time. Uh, when you're thinking about new customer experiences or how to innovate in the customer experience space, space uh, I don't know if these things are all equal, or I'd like to know if one is more important than another. You know, qualitative data, quantitative data—is it intuition? You know, what what uh, is it? Just a natural sense of human empathy. Like, what are the things, the qualities, that or the things that people are tapping into to create the best experiences? Wonderful question. Uh, and in the world of experience, we've always faced with customer experience, user experience, product design. Always faced with you know, how do you mix what all these sources tell you? Intuition, competitive best practices, what one industry is doing that you might want to take over, qualitative versus quantitative. All of them have a place. I uh, One thing that I probably, I didn't say yet, but in my years of, well, recent years of working with companies like MasterCard and GM, understanding scale, so important. So there's those are businesses that meet many different customer and consumer types. Uh, particularly in mobility, the more I talk to people, I realize everyone has their own orientation towards mobility and driving. Some don't want a car, some don't understand the brand, some are so passionate about Silverado and their truck and long-term mm-hmm. customers. 
some are fleet customers managing, you know, small businesses and things. And people have many different orientations. Going back to the heart of your question, mixing them all so important. So from an experience standpoint, really understanding behavior, so important. From a quantitative standpoint, tells me scale. Let's do a lot of work. We have one of the bigger, biggest innovations, I think, that we've pioneered just in the last couple of years at GM is our Voice of the Customer program that mines data interactions, 43 million at the moment. You know, that is call center logs, et cetera. That is interactions with email. That's interactions with your vehicle. On a quantitative standpoint, it also includes comments and other things that gives us some color. That's quantitative, really important to help us point to where we think we want to fix or improve things. The qualitative from an experience standpoint, so key. Mm -hmm. So from a product design, because that gives you the why behind the what. And quantitative gives us the what's happening. I have a much deeper embrace in the last five or seven years of quantitative than I ever used to. But then I need to pair that with a little bit of gut understanding what we think will differentiate, but a lot of qualitative just to understand what is it about this fleet manager who is managing a set of of nine drivers that we think is the real pain point. And data alone, quantitative doesn't show you that, but it is very key to great customer experience. So I can't say enough about qualitative, but that's not the only part of the story in large businesses that scale. You need to be able to take that and then prove it out, et cetera. So... Yeah, I, I talk a lot, a, a lot about people's passion in their work, and for a lot of very successful people, the passion is always really evident. And so sometimes when you think about passion, it makes me think about you know art, 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 artistic people because I think a lot of that is kind of a passion-driven business. And so sometimes when I think about customer experience, I feel like maybe some of the real rock stars in that space. Uh, it's kind of like making good music. You can just kind of feel it. So yeah, you've got to, you can see the data, you can, you can sit in the interviews, you can be told the challenges. But I think when you, when the, you know, I think great customer experience designers, when they really kind of quote unquote feel it and they can really identify and have that empathy with the people they're designing for, I think you, um, you know, I'd like to leave you get even better outcomes. Yeah. Just really, uh, it's just such, such an interesting, uh, interesting space. So I want to jump around a little bit. You know, we've talked a lot about customer experience. Out of interest, does employee experience, employee experience also fall into your world? It touches on my world. Yeah. And so um, the relation, you know, you want happy customers, you have to have happy employees, firmly believe it. And you have to have employees that understand and have empathy for customer and also understand the opportunity for technology. Uh, I also think um, if you're trying to compete in a world with uh, that is changed by technology, you need to create an environment that gives people opportunities, recognizes them for who they really are, their full self, et cetera. So important. But at GM, there are teams focused on the future, today's customer, today's employee experience and the future of that. I'm on a steering committee Um, working with that team. So sharing best practices and CX and understanding journey management and voice of the customer and data prioritization for which things should be addressed in the shorter term and trying to take some of those best best practices 
So it is related to my to my um, overall charter, but it's also a separate team, which is wonderful. There's so much work to be done, also in, in the. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Does GM have like a like a equivalent version of you, like a chief employee experience officer, or not? Is it not quite that formalized yet? It's not quite that formalized, and there's a small team of a few people really leading that effort. And then there's a larger steering team that are bringing best of breed um, thinking around. It's the moments that matter in a in an employee's journey itself. But just like our customers, it gets complex very quickly because we have you know t- uh, tens of thousands of people in manufacturing. That's a very different uh, employee experience than those people that are in management. And, I'm in really fascinated with the space lately. It's like you know, in, in Camillion Collective, we're in a, in a effectively a people business, and right. and so uh, you know sometimes I wonder. It's like, well, is the talent actually the is the talent the customer on many levels? So I've, I'm starting to realize that so many of the things that we've been building uh, to support our crew are actually it's customer it's employee experience type work but we so the line is getting very blurry for us i guess is what i'm trying to say so i think it's just you know it's really interesting time for that type of work absolutely it makes me think of something that uh i believe in i heard uh, i don't know a few years ago but i think the time has come that companies now work for the people that work there companies now work for their employees so I look at it as my job to create an environment that challenges and rewards and recognizes and enables. And, and keeping that shift in dynamic that we're now in that world, keeping that at the forefront of, because you know we think about the great resignation and what's going on today, it is absolutely my individual job, but all of our job to make sure that we're creating a place and enabling and taking the friction out of all of those things. So I like where you're going. Yeah, so, so, so as I describe uh, Camillion Collective as a, a company in service to the people and to a, versus a bunch of people in service to a company. And exactly. I think that trend's going to keep gonna keep happening, frankly. Be curious what, your, what our viewers are also yeah. thinking and seeing around that topic, but I think it is, it, we've only seen the start of it and we will see more of that just over the next few years. So, uh, I, you know, it would not be O-Ship if I didn't ask you an O-Ship question, Donald. So I'd love to know in your career, whether it's you personally or even observing other people, have you ever seen an instance where maybe with the best of intentions, a customer experience kind of project uh, uh, maybe blew up in your face or someone else's face or backfired on a brand or a company and didn't quite have the outcome uh, that they wanted, or as I like to call it, the no-ship moment. <laughs> I've had many of those from how teams have worked. Yeah. And there are a few where we launched things that just were total disasters. Yeah. So I, I think understanding there's a right time and a right place for some products and and really being aware of that. So uh, commitments towards thinking through what is it going to take to, and there's a travel site that I worked on in the like 20 years ago in Europe, very big investment. And part of, part of our understanding of what could be differentiating based on ethnography and research and competitive best, you know, benchmarking was content and thinking about travel related content, because that's what people, at the end of the day, total disaster because at the end of the day, booking is more important and that's where the revenue comes from. 
At the end of the day, they're competing against booking engines. And if I look at travel today, so many sites pick your brand. And I'd love to see if our, our viewers have a different point of view, but the content and editorial for travel planning is now held differently than the booking and the process around that. So it's just the first example that comes to mind. The, the other thing about that, so is that what customers and users really want versus is the business committed to maintaining that? So what it seems like a great idea in early stages of any business startup or, in, or early stages of any product that's underway, you need to think through the, you know, to use the buzzword total cost of ownership. And is the business ready to continue to maintain that level? In that case, it was content because it's a whole different commitment than just providing the tools to find the right product, air cruise, you know, air flight, uh, Hotel. is to test enough. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of like, people would, you get uh, very creative people come out with very creative ideas and there was a complete level of commitment and uh, like belief in this new idea and people would just launch these things and then they don't understand that, especially with a larger company that they're like, oh, who'd have thunk? Revenue's off $14 million this month or, you know, some staggering thing because people weren't doing either A-B testing or, or just taking iterative approaches to things. They were just kind of taking all the chips and sliding them across the table into one new direction. And I don't think you see that kind of stuff happen for any serious company working on customer experience now. Okay. Um, it, it, the understanding where the, where the revenue is coming from and never losing sight of that. Uh, sometimes I feel like that, that sounds, uh, like a boring kind of challenge, particularly for product and experienced designers who want to do really crazy things um, and crazy in a good way, really great ideas. But at the end of the day, I think of other examples for major retailers who tried to buck the trend and let's create something that's different from Amazon today. And it just flops because mm. that's not what customers want. And that's not what the business wants. Kind of customers don't want to figure out a new way to shop. They just want to get great products at the right price first. Yeah. That's why actually the e-commerce sites, the more basic and boring they look, the better. They kind of fall into a couple of swim lanes now and people aren't looking for any great innovative ideas on the design layouts there because it crushes your conversion rate. Uh, so people are just terrified of it. And there's a lot of innovations in, in commerce. There's a lot of um, staging of products and a little bit of editorial in the right places. So I don't mean to be so reductive, but at the end of the day, it's understanding, pushing product. And I love the fact that many retailers are actually staging products without actually photographing. It's all CG. So there's such innovations in creating some of the content that can do things quickly and cheaply to feature a whole room of furnishings and then from there take kind of, you know, the products and sell them in a really quick, simple way. So, I have to know, uh, I'm very intrigued. When you look at a company like MasterCard or, or GM, how many people are working on, on the kind of customer experience over there as, as at least maybe as a formal group? Or are you able to share any of that as a, as a, or at least, or a type of company like that, perhaps, if you can't say, you know, numbers, but those types of companies well, it's i don't mean to skirt the, the problem and i don't know what the numbers are but the i always say that you know my i'll just speak for me first of all my title recently might have experienced the role 
but customer experience is so many people's responsibility. Because that could be so, customer support and things like that, even the, yeah. Also product. So are your product leaders and technologists really thinking about customer experience? You know, a company like Amazon that, you know, whatever, has many different methods, interesting methods to keep customer need first. So I don't know what the numbers of people that work in CX, UX, in Amazon. We know it's a lot. It's a lot bigger than many other traditional companies. But, but we are talking about hundreds of people, theoretically, right? Not dozens. Uh, a mix of both. Yeah. So. Yeah. GM has many, many, um, but uh, I think the real challenge in both environments is making sure that the rest of the people, your leaders, your technologists are all thinking customer experience and putting that in their OKRs and other things, not just leaving it to three people who are the UX and you go, and I would say UX this for us. You've got a bad product or some features, UX this for us, thank you. And that responsibility is far bigger. So it needs to be shared across the organization. So um, I wanna ask uh, kind of one, one more big question uh, for today, Donald. And when you, when you think about other people who might look at your career and uh, want to follow in your kind of footsteps or take this on as, as a career path, I, you know, what's the best way you know to get started? I don't, I don't think there was formal education for it when when you started. Now there may be you know whole easy career tracks in, in schools, but I'd, I'd love to get a sense of you know what what's the best place for people to start thinking about building a career here. So a couple things I mentioned technology throughout. I think just really becoming a friend to technology in any form in your education understanding what is the future of AI or cameras and connected cameras and thinking, and I'm just randomly choosing one, AI will feed everything. So because customer experience and technology will always be related. I think number two is the questions that you ask, Qual and Quant. I, I feel like it's an important ingredient for me to be always hungry about, well, what does a customer want? Let's go ask. And it doesn't mean you design everything by, do you want A or B? We're just going to choose A. It's trying to find out the need. So the more anyone can really embrace how we stay customer and people focused in how we think about things will always evolve us, always evolve them in their career. And those are two bigger things, I think, again, being fluent in technology and then being always relentlessly focused in smart ways around how to understand a user need, even when it's not articulated. That's where some of the best startups, and I'd love to hear you know, from some of our, our viewers around how they stay hungry and thirsty around what, a, what the you know, people behavioral change is, is absolutely so important. And that changes. I do have one uh, crazy question from the audience. So it's, it's a it's a mouthful, but it's an interesting challenge for you. So uh, we've got one uh, one viewer that has said, but I'm going to try and paraphrase a bit here. Uh, so speaking of innovation, um, Masa is wondering about when people shift to kind of fully automated driving experiences some point in the future. If you know if you're not driving, will people still need driver's licenses? And, you know, is there any thoughts or, you know, from, from what you think might happen there in terms of how they approach, whether it's regulation or just licensing, or, you know, any, any high level thoughts that you can answer? It's there? a fantastic question. 
So a couple things. So those are starting to be on the road today. And I think, you know, I've talked a lot around the vehicle being a very different experience based on technology. I love the question because it tees up the autonomous vehicle, fundamentally different. Just think about what the vehicle experience is like when you don't have to keep your eyes on the road. Now, our, you know, super cruise. And we barely uh, keep our eyes on the road now, and it's not autonomous. Just imagine. <laughs> so we want, so for super cruise, we always want you to stay alert and driving, and that is driver-assisted features, but fully level five autonomous. On the road right now, we have in our, our company cruise self-driving taxis in San Francisco. There's, Amazing. They're on the road. And think of what that's like. Someone said who was in an, in, in one, yeah. uh, made the comment that I just loved. They said, they said it's the first time you get in a self-driving car, it is a fundamentally game-changing experience for the first five minutes. And then your phone comes out. <laughs> You're like, and I'm still just about so many things that we've talked about today around new technology, pioneering, et cetera, and how quickly we habituate to it. So it's amazing that that people just eventually start doing things. And, you know, we have our advanced research and design teams are thinking about what is the in-vehicle experience when the vehicles are self-driving. Now, the the viewer asked about driver's license. So in that case, it's the license goes to the livery company. It's a whole different business. Now, when you're owning a a self-driving car, I actually don't know. So it's a good question around what what you will need to understand around driving, et cetera, to make sure that it's registered and licensed to you. I just honestly don't know the question, but I will say with self-driving cars in the case of taxis, you don't have to have a license. Yeah. You're just the passenger. It's just like, yeah, like the Uber driver, you have no connection to it. They're providing you a service ultimately. Exactly. I guess ownership will dictate everything. Super exactly. interesting. So, uh, Don, I just want to be conscious of time. Uh, this was such a great, uh, great chat. I, I could pick your brain for 10 more hours. Uh, I, I know that other people will want to engage with you and follow you and learn more about what you're thinking about the world. So what, what's the best way for people to stay engaged with you if they, they want to you know, read, read about what you're thinking or, or connect with you in some way? So first of all, please do. LinkedIn is probably my choice of platform by way of behavior these days. Find it great by way of keeping in touch, communication, and just the content of sharing. So hit me up on LinkedIn. It's probably my favorite social channel today. And please, please do. If you've, I've said anything that either resonates or that you disagree, we'd love to hear about it. That's awesome. Th- th- thanks, Donald. And I, I do want to take a moment. Normally, today at this moment, I would talk about people supporting the show. But today, I'd like to reach out to any of our audience that may know uh, Sean Finnegan. And so Sean Finnegan uh, was one of the original founding members of Chameleon Collective. I believe he was Chameleon number number three. And he had a huge, profound impact on this business. And he also had a huge, profound impact on my life personally. And he may have had a huge, profound impact on many of your lives if you've been in the digital advertising world uh, for a long time. He was kind of a larger-than-life personality who seemed to be everywhere and you, you know, you get a reputation for taking photos with celebrities, and you knew you'd really made it if you'd end up in a Sean Finnegan selfie someplace at some industry party. Uh, unfortunately, Sean uh, passed away on Friday of, of last week rather suddenly. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a huge, a huge uh, hit for all of us. And he's, you know, left behind his his, his wife and seven children in between the age of nine. 
to 25. Sean had done an enormous amount of effort in terms of uh, supporting everyone that was around him. He used to mentor students. He would mentor people's careers. He would give talks at universities. And he was always trying to invest in the kind of next generation of youth and people coming up through our industry. And unfortunately, he's not around to do that anymore, whether that's for people out in the industry or frankly, very sadly, for his family. So today we've launched a website called friendsoffinnegan.com. Uh, this goes to a memorial site where you can RSVP to attend his memorial, whether that is online or uh, on uh, in person in Chicago. And it also gives an opportunity uh, to donate to a, a memorial fund that we've created to make sure that his kids uh, get the education that they deserve and any uh, excess funds that are there will go to other charitable organizations, potentially scholarship funds in the future. Uh, but if you were a friend of uh, Sean Finnegan, if you've got the time, we'd love to see you visit friendsoffinnegan.com. And you know, if nothing else, we give you a chance to have some closure at one of his memorials. And if you can, uh, reach into your pocket and uh, pay it forward or pay it back, depending on your relationship with Sean, that would be really, really wonderful. So thanks for letting me have that little sidebar, Donald. Again, I just uh, it's only appropriate that that happened today. So um, thank you again, Donald. You're awesome. Thank you to all the people that tuned in, whether you're listening live or you're watching on our podcast or any of the video streams on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, or, or Twitter. Uh, thank you again for supporting OSHIP. And again, thank you, Donald. Have a, have a wonderful day. The OSHIP Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, we'll see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O Ship Show.